0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: G'day, it's Clint Jasper with you. Let's catch up with our reporters exploring a big country. This week, we're visiting a farm in northeast Victoria growing edible native crops. Think finger limes, bush mints, lemon myrtle and pepperberries. It's all part of a research project looking at drought resilient farming. We'll hear about works to protect salt marshes and mangroves on New South Wales farms. The threatened ecosystems have been found to play an important role in sequestering carbon. And we'll meet a flower farming family who are growing pretty peonies, but not for the commercial flower market. They're focused on farm gate sales and they invite customers to pick their own bunches.
2: We really like our pick your own days that people can come and share in them with us and get amongst the plants. a good family day out the kids come there's plenty of grass as you can see so people run around the kids run around and mum gets to pick some flowers and have a nice time we see a lot of um generations coming together so it might be mum and grandma and the kids as well all come for a nice day out
1: We'll visit that flower farm in northwest Tasmania that's become a tourist attraction coming up. First today, we're off to a film premiere. Sydney-based filmmaker Joanna Joy has brought author Judith Wright's story of her family's colonial history in central Queensland to life on the big screen. The filmmaker collaborated with traditional owners to tell the story of the resilience of local Indigenous people. It was filmed on location in central Queensland with Aboriginal actors taking on starring roles. Reporter Inga Stutzner went along to a premiere in Rockhampton, where the film screened to an enthusiastic and emotional audience.
3: Generations of Men began when I was 14 years old. My dad gave me a copy of the book. He really loves Judith Wright. And when he gave me the book, he said, I know it's called Generations of Men, but it's actually all about the women. So it's a really interesting story because it's two books. You know, one is kind of a colonial history. The other is kind of more of a revisionist version, um, looking at indigenous language groups and cultures and history on that particular um, area of land around May Downs and the cattle stations out there. It's not very often that people rewrite their own work. um, And I think that's pretty bold and brave of Judith to look at what she'd written, uh, even though it was a fantastic book and go, that's not good enough, I wanna do that again and so she spent years researching that and I wanted to combine those two lenses together in a film that, yeah, paid tribute to Judith Rath's legacy but also, you know, featured the people and the language of the land on which the story was set. Hello, my name is Margaret Hornigold and I'm a
4: burrowder and Cabalborough person um, and was um, involved with this production of this film in the early days Um, for May Downs, the station that's where my father was born. Um, I've been out there along the Isaac River where those beautiful big trees are I've walked in the water there I've spoken to the trees and to the spirits who are out there so it was just magnificent seeing it captured in that way. But when Joe first came I just thought this is a glorious opportunity for um, Aboriginal people from this land to be able to put their story out there, and to have um, the language in use too. And I was just blown away by those young actors.
5: They defied the authorities, and at risk to themselves and their families, they continued to practice culture and speak their language. Uh, My name is Naya Hatfield, but I usually get called Naya Nikki. Naya is um, auntie in our Durrumbaa language. What Judith Wright wrote in that, her book, it was the same thing our old people have been telling us for years and years about how we used to interact with our neighbours and everything, how we married into our neighbours, how we lived with our neighbours. This is for thousands and thousands of years. And we were on good... Um, our neighbours to the west and to the north, we always had good relationships. We married into each other and um, and when i seen this in judith Wright's book i just like i said i was amazed i said oh my gosh this is what our old people have been telling us all along
1: My
6: name's Nikki Muller. Um, I was one of the Burrata um, traditional owners that uh, just looked after everybody on set and just uh, ensured that where they were filming was in safe places and not, any, not on our sacred um, places. When obviously Joe and the crew had mapped out some areas on where they were going to film because of, because of the scenery, because it's such a beautiful place up there, many beautiful places, um, when it come down for us to check uh the areas that they had mapped out it was actually in areas where one was quite significant to our men's and that's our men's business so we had to make sure that no one was um near that area at all particularly women as well my auntie nancy who's one of the elders you know left out of the the 16 and she's like in her 80s she said to me there tonight she said oh nick she said that made our country beautiful it took me back it took her back seeing that on the big screen like that took her back Aunty Nance was born on that country, not in the house, not in a thing. She was born on that, on that dirt. So you know that would have been truly amazing for her to feel feel that. Just an amazing thing, and I think our family will be ever so proud because there's a lot of our family that haven't returned to country yet, and we're we're bringing them all home. You know, bringing them all home slowly. So when they get wind of that and see that, they're actually going to go, oh my God, this is our country. We we need to stop talking about it, and we need to go. Yeah.
7: Leilani Hatfield. I sat in the writing rooms with them and kind of had a back and forth contribution, and then um, we worked together. and The girls brought me on as co-producer to the film, which was yeah a really
5: amazing experience.
7: Uh, hi, my name's Andrew Young.
1: I am from Werribee and Rockhampton. Uh, I am an Anangu Pitjantjatjara man. I played the character Patty or his Dumble name is Barangay.
5: I'm Zali Hayden. I'm from Rockhampton. My mob is Dumble in the film Generations of Men. My name is Minda and it means sun go down. The way they uh, they use the Dumble language and, um, and and their own language—it's not all Dumble language—and um, and they just uh, yeah, they've they've really done us proud, yeah.
3: Uh, Elizabeth Hill, Clarkwood at Clark Creek. It's, it's a hard situation, isn't it? The history is history and we can't change it. We can't do anything about it. The pe- Indigenous people are very welcome at our place. They come to our place and enjoy their culture there. So it's, you know, we just, it's history. We just have to live with it and accept it and acknowledge it and, you know, make films about it so that it doesn't get lost.
2: So yeah, so this is coming out into the main paddock. Um, so we've got nearly 8,000 plants out here. Uh, the oldest were planted 17
7: years ago. At the end of spring, this flower farm in northern Tasmania is a beautiful sight. Fields of thousands of fluffy white and pink flowers sway in the breeze. And it's a scene that flower grower Andrea O'Halloran doesn't take for granted.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's lovely. I really look forward to November each year. Um, I just find it so amazing.
7: Hello, I'm Meg Powell. I'm visiting Andrea's family business, Heathermore Peonies at La Trobe, near the state's northwest coast. This peony farm has been nearly two decades in the making. Uh, So, we
2: planted our first plants 17 years ago, and it took about three years to get the entire planting of 8,000 plants in. Um, We didn't get any... You don't normally get blooms off peonies in the first couple of years. So the first few years were really just about getting the bushes up and going. Uh, And so we've probably been picking flowers, I guess, for 14 years.
7: Originally, the business plan was to sell the peonies on the cut flower market. But in more recent years, the family has opted for a different model, focused on local markets, farm gate sales and tourism, inviting customers to come and pick their own blooms.
2: We stepped away from the commercial sales. We found them just a little bit too intensive and um, the market's getting probably a bit tight there, whereas we quite enjoy this side of being able to go to the farmers' markets with our bunch of flowers or sell them from our gate and also welcome people into the paddock on our open days for pick-your-own sessions.
7: Peonies, it's so fast. There's nothing and then suddenly there's some shoots and then suddenly there's a whole bush and suddenly flowers. Yeah so they grow from kind of a
2: rootstock tuber in the ground Um, so they're a perennial plant that die off each year and so this paddock would you believe was bare at the beginning of September so less than three months later we're standing here and we've got not only giant bushes with flowers on them but some of them are already finished Um, so it's really incredible to watch every year it still amazes me that in the space of 10 to 12 weeks we go from ground with tiny little shoots poking through all the way up into these amazing bushes with
7: so many flowers on them. The flowering window itself is quite short. Yeah so most varieties
2: really only flower across 10 to 14 days um, so we extend our picking window out to about three weeks by a few different varieties. Sometimes we can get four weeks depending on how the season runs um, with earlier and later varieties but yes each bush is really not a large window
7: and how has the season been this year it's been terrible weather for a lot of farmers
2: look like everyone else we've certainly noticed the effects the wetness the lack of sunshine so the low light levels certainly have caused us to have a later start Um, and it really just had a lot of the plants sitting there ready so that when the sunshine did come out they all started blooming and now we're over and done with quite quickly so it's been a very condensed window this year got a few different pinks out here and a white one as well. What's this one? Uh, So this is Felix Cruz. Uh, He's a bright pink peony and also scented, so quite lovely.
7: Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm. One of the ways that your family likes to sell your peonies is through open days. People have been coming to those, even though it's been pouring with rain.
2: Yes, and people have come in Decent winds and it has been wet on days and we're still very grateful that people have come out and been able to share the flowers with us. Um, And we really like just getting to chat to people and walk amongst the flowers with them.
6: That's
7: um, quite a testament to people's love of of these flowers. Why do you think they are so popular?
2: I mean, like, they're a beautiful flower. Like, they're just genuinely so lovely. Uh, But I think the fact that it's such a short season and you can only get them locally for such a narrow period of the year adds to that specialness of them um, and people then for or start really associating special things with the flowers.
7: How many people does it take to run the operation out here?
2: Uh, so we're very much a family business um, and we, being the short season that peonies are, we sort of slot them in around other things that are going on. Um, so my dad, he's busy farming a lot of the time, so he does a lot of the growing of our flowers, getting them up and going, making sure they're growing well, the watering and such. Uh, my brother... And I then do a lot of the picking and bunching. Um, my brother heads off to the harvest market in Launceston every week, sells a bunches of flowers there, and I am more involved in our open days and making sure our bunches are all up and going.
7: Yeah, Andrea, you're a you're a mother of two kids under three. You live and work over at the Tamar Valley, and you're doing the peonies here. Are you exhausted at the moment?
2: Slightly. (laughs) But uh, look, we're surrounded by beautiful flowers, so that really helps and makes it worthwhile.
1: Flower grower Andrea O'Helleran showing reporter Meg Powell around Heathmore, her family's peony farm in northwest Victoria. For more on that story, including photos of those beautiful flowers, head online to the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash RN, and look for a big country. I'm Clint Jasper, with you on RN, still to come, how fencing off parts of farms is helping save an important ecosystem and breeding habitat for fish and birds, and the native crops that could help farmers adjust to drier times
0: it's morning tea time and steeping in the kettle is fresh bush mint tea and homemade cake is being passed around
8: there's some lemon myrtle cake that'll go really well with that so help yourself
0: these indigenous flavors could one day be more common as researchers look at ways of farming that will be drought resilient in the future hello i'm annie brown And I've come along to a farm at Kagania in northeast Victoria's Kiwa Valley, where edible plants are being grown and harvested. This property is taking part in a University of Melbourne research project on redesigning broadacre farming systems. Doran Gupta, a crop researcher based at the university's Dookie campus, says growing a more diverse range of crops will be important in a changing climate.
9: Primarily, when we look for broadacre cropping, uh, we are um, trying to promote and uh, we are trying to address the challenge when we have uh, on farm only two major crops growing, such as wheat and canola. We don't have any other vegetation on those farms. So to enhance their um, resilience over years, um, having more diversity on farms, we are encouraging having native grasses. Whereas when we think of what we have here at Gay's Farm, we do have native crops. That is something to consider from a bigger perspective, that we want to have more diversified options in our diet, on our plate, and that will come when we will think of Including these native crops, they are not going to replace the broadacre crops, which are our staples. But having uh, those options in market, when we produce them, when we sell them, coming to our plates, uh, that is something um, we are really keen to make it happen. And uh, the part of project which is uh, w- through which we are working at Gaze Farm is addressing that bigger, bigger challenge.
0: Yeah, so perhaps going back to indigenous cropping, yeah, and and putting some more of those indigenous crops back into our diet.
9: That's correct. Um, and, and also we we have uh, really forgotten some of the grains such as kangaroo grass. So on Gaze Farm we have on a um, sloppy piece of land kangaroo grass not, not just to prevent the soil erosion but also to consider um, this particular crop as a future grain crop where you might find in coming years on shells um, a bread which is made with kangaroo grass grain
0: on a steep hillside in the Kiwa Valley, Indigenous farmer Gay Baker has been busy turning slopy land into cropping country. She is in the third year of growing Indigenous crops commercially.
4: I'm establishing my business, which is Gap Flat Track uh, Edible Natives. The Kiwa Valley is uh, a very rich, productive area, um, and it has been for very many years. Where I'm located right here is up on the side of the mountain, so it's quite steep. Uh, realistically, not for the faint hearted, <laughs> and it's land that your average farmer down through the middle of the valley who has nice flat land, river flats, etc., they don't really consider that this land up here is viable. The work that I've done here is to put in a road and to terrace the area so that we could make flat areas so that you can actually work on flat areas. It's just that they're small flat areas on the side of the hill. The farm grows a range of Indigenous crops. So we have Tasmanian mountain pepper, three different sorts of lily pillies, three different sorts of finger limes, lemon myrtle, native parsley, Native celery. At the moment, only two different mints. The main one that I started with was Mernong. Mynong was a staple crop for indigenous peoples in a lot of Eastern Australia areas. And it was uh, eaten out basically by your sheep and cattle and so forth. So Mynong, in my opinion, was always a cultivated vegetable. And so what has survived has now reverted back to its wild stock. So we now are in the process of seed selection and plant selection and taste selection. And as part of that also too, we will be looking for shapes of tubers, sizes of tubers, that sort of thing, that will be acceptable to go into commercial production. Because one of the things that we meet is a bit of resistance that it doesn't look like what the public has been trained to think that food should look like. A native parsnip needs to look something like a parsnip.
0: With a growing demand for native foods, Miss Baker hopes to show that it is profitable.
4: There is a huge demand. There's a huge interest and there's a huge demand for native foods. The industry can't keep up with some ply... I'd really like to see a connection between lots of small growers to coming together so that we've got a big enough supply. You know, if you've got a number of people all doing that, then that makes much bigger numbers. It makes the whole industry much stronger.
8: Oh, this place here is about. 200 acres, there's probably about 80 acres of it is salt marsh. So it's pretty, um, it's low country, you can't, can't make any feed or sides of it, so it's just a are holding ground for cows.
10: Dairy farmer Paul Anderson milks 240 cows at his family property here at Pyrie, a farming district in the Shoalhaven region of south-east New South Wales. The land here is a mix of productive pasture and wetlands, including salt marsh. You
8: can't grow, can't grow any pastures, I mean, if you can't grow fireweed, well you can't grow nothing. So really it's, it's pretty dead land. So it's, if we can uh, beautify it a bit more or whatever, it's because we, we do have a bit of a wet land area on, on here as well and there's, there's a few little birds there and water there all the time so it's, it's, it's um, not too bad. And
10: while the salt marsh land may not hold value in terms of agricultural production, there's a renewed push to protect salt marsh and mangroves, like the ones found here that's because scientists understand that these threatened ecosystems are able to sequester carbon faster than tropical rainforests. Hello, I'm Josh Becker. I'm here on the Andersons property where Paul and his brother Keith are working with local land services to fence off and protect salt marsh country. Sonia Bizzacco is a senior local land services officer working on this project.
11: Yeah, so what's really great about this project is, on Andersons, is that we're fencing off 17 hectares of what I would say is largely, say, 80 per cent coastal salt marsh and around uh, 10 to 20 per cent of mangroves and swamp oak forest. So that's really great. That's a really large, significant area that Andersons are putting aside towards having an environmental gain. And I've been approaching a lot of farmers in the Pyree area because there are actually, there's actually 220 hectares of salt marsh uh, in the Shoalhaven, and that's the la- largest area of salt marsh that there is in the whole of the southeast. Uh, how significant of, as an ecosystem is the salt marsh? Well, a lot of people don't even realise really what salt marsh is, um, and it, it is that um, intertidal community that's that's on the landward side of mangroves. Uh, so trees aren't able to grow in that area, and it's usually full of grasses, reeds, um, succulents, um, and rushes. Salt marsh is really important for lots of different reasons. Um, one reason a lot of people don't realise is that coastal salt marsh is able to absorb eight times as much carbon and 35 times the rate than a land-based forest um, so, yeah, it's very important for doing that. Not only that, it's very important in improving water quality. So what it does is it actually acts as a buffer between the terrestrial and aquatic environment. So sediment and off-farm runoff, uh, such as nitrogen and contaminants, is actually uh, filtered through the salt marsh and absorbed and recycled by the salt marsh. And it's actually really good at holding the edge of our estuaries down and our waterways down. So as we're seeing a more extreme events and more wave energy destroying our coastlines, the salt marsh is really good at kind of anchoring it down and uh, reducing the effects of that happening. Another reason why coastal salt marsh is also very important is its value as a habitat. So uh, studies have been done that have shown that over 40 different fish species utilise salt marsh for habitat. A lot of those being commercial species. species um, And some of those uh, also use that area as a nursery for younger fish. And there's a huge amount of other species also use coastal salt marsh, uh, such as migratory species, uh, such as the sandpipers and mammals and raptors and, yeah, many different species. How would you rate the quality of the salt marshes in the southeast New South Wales? Uh, It does vary, very very much between the region. I tend to think the further south you go, the the salt marsh is in very good condition further south. Um, In general, I would say it's in good condition. What role can farmers have in in protecting these salt marshes? Yeah, so it's really important to be able to... The first step really is to exclude stock off these very sensitive areas because what happens is the salt marsh plants get eaten and they get trodden on and pugging occurs and that's where the hooves... uh, dig holes into the salt marsh and salt marsh is really sensitive in that it requires a certain elevation to actually regenerate so if all of the topsoil is lost in salt marsh it takes it, it won't regenerate and it'll stay completely bare so it won't be able to perform all those fantastic functions I was talking about before. Is there a downside in uh,
10: fencing off this area that has once been used for grazing that people lose a part of their farm or are you hearing feedback from farmers that they're happy to go down that path?
11: Uh, I often cold call landholders and I uh, target landholders that have large areas of coastal salt marsh and most landholders that I talk to are very keen actually to be part of our project and because this vegetation community is so important uh, we have really good incentive programs particularly around coastal salt marsh to protect these areas. And um, often they aren't worth very much economically anyway. They have very low grazing capacity. There aren't thick, dense plants in there. Kikuyu grass can't grow in that area. So it's not much of a loss for those landholders. And
10: dairy farmer Paul Anderson says he's happy to fence off the salt marsh on his land and keep animals out of the area for the benefit of the environment.
8: Oh, yeah, I mean... You can't use it for anything anyway, so if, if you're just um, trying to save it, um, and at the end of the day, the farmer is, I think, is the is is best in, in, uh, in environmentalist because we, we walk the ground and uh, we, we, we know what it, 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 you know, can and can't do.
1: Dairy farmer Paul Anderson from Pyrie in the south-east of New South Wales ending that report from Josh Becker about a project to protect salt marsh country. To learn more about that story and all of the stories you've heard on today's program, you can check out the A Big Country program page on the RN website. You'll find it at abc.net.au. rn That's the show for today. I'm Clint Jasper and I'll be back next week with more stories from our regional reporters. Talk to you then.